As an only child, I had always put me first. Even when I started having kids, it was all me because I grew up an only child. I was self-centered, selfish, but now I get to put that, not thinking less of myself, but thinking of others more than myself. That's the energy that I try to put out into these youngsters because pride is pride is deadly. Hello, I'm Paul Munir, the Executive Director of the Youth Intervention Programs Association, and I'm a youth worker at heart. How lucky am I? I have the privilege to meet youth workers from around the globe and learn their stories and share them with the entire world. I'm glad you're listening because together we'll learn how their life experiences shape their youth work. As you listen, I encourage you to consider how your experiences shape what you have to offer young people. Welcome to this edition of The Passionate Youth Worker. Hi, everybody. For this episode, we're joined by Marquise Bowie from Minnesota here in the United States. He is a partner with the Minnesota BAM Project, where they support young people into manhood. And prior to his current work in a high school and in the community with the Minnesota Agape Movement, he spent 12 years in a federal prison. Before his release, he knew he was ready to get back. And as you listen to his story, you'll find out that he has made the most of his new opportunity. Marquise, thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a blessing and an honor to be able to do this. Marquise, as we get to know you a little bit as we go through your podcast. We'll learn how your life has really just come full circle and how you're now known as kind of a champion for young people in your community. But let's back up and start at the beginning. Thinking back when you were young, what was your home-like life for you? Well, I grew up in a single-parent home with my mom, so I was a mama's boy to the fullest. I was just a fun, go-lucky, happy kid up until probably the mid-'80s when uh, drugs ravished the urban communities in which I live. And then I seen my community kind of change. But in spite of that, I was still a a happy-go-lucky type young guy. So in the mid-80s, how old were you then? Uh, 10. I was 10 in 85, and that's really when the crack epidemic hit our communities. So up until 10, was life pretty good, would you say? I mean, were you doing... Good in school, have friends yeah. playing in the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff normal 10-year-old kids do? Yep, yep. Boys and Girls Club, uh, Summer in the City. I was always part of uh, activities, love basketball, uh, going to the YMCA, swimming, and all that good stuff that was in my community not too far from where I was at. Yeah, and then the crack epidemic hit, and and I remember that going through, especially the urban area. And mm-hmm. the way that the police and society handled that was very different than just cocaine in general. Well, Can you talk about like what changed for you and what changed for your community at that point? I would say uh, just me noticing things changing within within my mom. I, I believe she started doing drugs early on. She was a young teenage mom when she had me. And with her having six, seven siblings, you know, that was kind of difficult, you know, her being the second oldest, her kind of being one of the champions or leaders of her sisters. Uh, you know, I could see some things changing, but it was it was it was pretty normal, though. You know, I try to spend a lot of time at the roller gardens and stuff like that. I, I grew up as an only child, so I was around my cousins a lot, spending the night and weekends at their house. So it, it was it was normal at the time. 
Yeah. Do you have fond memories of that? I do. Uh, my grandma was a bus driver. So, and this is my dad's mom. And although my dad wasn't in my life like I wanted him to be, I'd see him every now and again. And, and I'd see him at the roller gardens when I went skating. And then when we were catching the bus to and from roller skating, I would always see my grandma on there, which would brought me great joy to still have this connection. Even when I didn't see my dad at times, I would always say my grandma. And uh, that was always a joyful time because my dad was a cool guy. He, you know, had leather pants. He was kind of like cameo slash uh, Eddie Murphy he had a motorcycle. Nice. So I would always look for opportunities to see him. Yeah. And he stayed not too far from where I was at, but. You know, he was he was one of the playboys back in the day, I would say. Got it. And that's maybe why he wasn't deeply involved in, in your world. And you and your mom were kind of on your own for the most part. Right. Right. Yeah. And then I, I believe he started dabbling with drugs, too. And uh, from what he told me later on, that he really kind of moved away just to get himself under wraps because the drugs had started taking over his life. And uh, now he's a successful uh, truck driver, him and his wife. You know, we, we still talk. We still have a relationship that's still growing and building, even as I'm catching up with him in age. <laughs> <laughs> right. I get it. And how about your mom? Are you still pretty connected with your mom? Is, is your mom, you you mentioned she got into drugs and stuff. Is she now right. doing okay? Or what? how's your mom? Uh, my mom, unfortunately, passed in 2018. Uh, oh. That was my last leg of my incarceration. So yeah. You know, but I, I saw her pretty often and she was she was she was battling still. She's also uh, plagued with diabetes and, you know, a, a bunch of bad health choices growing up that probably caught up to her. So you had your dad was kind of on his own. Uh, your mom got into the crack scene, the drug scene that swept through so many neighborhoods. And then that's when your life started to change. Did you mm -hmm. get involved with that stuff or can you talk a little bit about the transition from up to 10? And then what about after that? So we, we bounced around uh, uh, South Minneapolis a lot, a couple of different apartments. And then I specifically remember in probably like 87, 88, my mom started messing with this guy named uh, Blackjack is what we called him. Come to find out that he was a, he was a drug dealer. And that's really when I seen like it turned for the worst word. I didn't even want to be at home at all. Because mm. I really, I really didn't like him. He was from down south somewhere. I really couldn't understand his language. When I look back, it, it almost made me feel like he was really taking my mom away from me. Yeah. And I just wanted to be away from him. And and at times, I would just literally go home for when it was time to go to sleep or stuff like that. So I really hit the streets full fledged and really took up on a life of my own. And my life just took a turn for the worse, really, when my when my best friends, Abdul Ferguson, was killed. I think it was in 91. And, I, and that's really when I can see, like, physically, my life heading in the wrong direction. Up until then, I was a good student. I was always in advanced classes in uh, junior high, hmm. all the way up into high school. But once Abdul got killed, he was the cool kid of, of the crew. And uh, my life just really went downhill from then. I'm sorry to hear uh, about your loss with your mom and your best friend. So at that time, not only were you losing your mom to this guy, you were losing your mom to the drug scene. It had to be pretty difficult for you. And, and the way you coped was you're just going to get away and start. Uh, you grew up way too fast, right? You got out and started right. doing stuff with, with friends. And then your best friend, the cool guy, 
lost his life to violence. At that point, were you bitter and angry or were you still hopeful that maybe things are going to work out okay? Or where were you at at that point when your best buddy was killed? I was honestly just lost. Yeah. I mean, because I had never seen death that close. And then for it to be a best friend slash cousin, a big part of me was missing. I remember we had just tried out for the Roosevelt High School basketball team, and he got killed in the midst of that. We were at a, a, a party. He wasn't supposed to be there because he was on house arrest, and I wasn't supposed to be there because I was a, a youth. It was an accident murder that happened. It was an accident murder that happened, and that really changed the scope of our neighborhood because the person who got accused of it was a guy named Tony. And he was actually dating Abdul's sister. And that just brought on a whole different thing because a lot of people wanted to hurt him thinking that he was the one that did it. And in reality, he wasn't. It was another guy named Tony. But that name Tony came up. So, of course, you're going to think of the most popular Tony. You're not going to think of the, the lame Tony. Yeah. And that really did something to the community, I, I would say. And. I can. I was looking at some Roosevelt High School pictures, and I can literally see me morph from like a Urkel type guy into a Boys in the Hood type guy. And it was like, wow! Just to see that transformation myself, looking through pictures, it was like, wow. I mean, but the times have been changing. You know, that was the beginning of hip hop, and then here comes gangster rap with N.W.A. and you know they're kind of telling the street narrative, and yeah. I can see myself thinking I was Ice Cube or Easy e or somebody like that when Jerry curls and, you know, you wanted to keep up with the fad, so. Well, your world really got turned upside down, and it's so sad that we have systems that support that kind of thing and allowed that kind of thing to happen. It was such a shame, and it's still a shame because it's still going on today, right? You know it. Right. You know it better than I do. I'm not telling you something you don't know. So then, at what point did you start getting in trouble with the law because we're going to get to how you served 12 years in prison, but how did, how did it build up to where that happened? Whatever that was that caused you to go to prison? Really just being outside. uh, Most of the people that I grew up with were coming from single parent homes. So it was really like the blind leading the blind. Yeah. I mean, we're all closely related, whether it was through in-laws or cousins, cousins. And we just, associated ourselves with the neighborhood gang, which was was the Bloods in Minneapolis. We were just a bunch of lost young men that really didn't have nobody to look up to other than the guys that were out in the street making drugs. Dylan looked cool. They had all the fancy cars. They had all the women wanted to be around them. They had the jury. And that's coming from almost having nothing. You know, we looked up to that. We didn't have that many positive role models in the neighborhood that we could you know, get under their wings and them kind of give us something that we weren't getting. And then what was your first exposure into crime? Was it the thing that caused you to do 12 years or was it a kind of no, a gradual uh, build up? I want to say I had an incident at Roosevelt High School where I, I was registered at another school. No, matter of fact, let me back up. So my first encounters was like me walking in on drug raids. When mm-hmm. I was going home, 14, 15, my mom's boyfriend was a drug dealer. So me walking in on drug raids in progress and then seeing how the police were kind of handling my mom and the other people in the house, that kind of gave me a negative view of the policing. And, 
you know, me hanging out in the streets. I remember the first time I ever even really had some physical drugs, we found them. We found them in the neighborhood. And some of our older cousins and uncles used to get high. So they kind of showed us the game, showed us how to break it down and distribute it in the community. And, you know, along most of the time when you're in that lifestyle, you're going to carry a weapon for protection. So I think my first encounter, like going to the county jail as a juvenile, was me getting caught with a gun. Hmm. And then I think a little bit after that, I ended up going to the county homeschool in, uh, in Minnetonka. It was called the beta program. And this yeah. was for like first time people. I think I did maybe a month there, but they had us walking up hills in the snow and it was kind of like a military type thing. And then on the other side of that coin was the county homeschool for the longer term people. And probably within a year, I went to the county homeschool for like a nine month to 18 month sentence. Can't remember exactly. I, I might have caught caught with some drugs or another gun. And, you know, every couple years it was those type of situations. But I was still a juvenile at the time. So it was really only so much they can do. Never caught any type of cases where I had any victims. So these were considered property crimes. So what happened that you had to serve 12 years in prison? What was that charge? So those were a bunch of charges that kind of been recycled. I mean, so throughout my life, I would I would go to the workhouse. I got a couple DWIs for driving while under the influence. I, I had took up on drinking heavily. And, and my federal sentence, which happened in 2007, was just all those cases kind of being re-brought back to the, to, the, to the light. I did probation. I did a little juvenile time. I did some time in the, in the Hennepin County Workhouse. And in 2007, some guys that I grew up with had got caught selling drugs. They got caught with pistols. And in order for the federal government to make it seem like it was a big drug conspiracy, they lumped us all in together with mm. help from the other guys that got caught that didn't want to take responsibility. So they brought 11 other guys into their situation so they can get less time. And me, with my track record, I, it, was, it was a no-brainer kind of to plead guilty to something because the stuff that they said was already documented that I had already did time for. So it wasn't like I could deny it, but I didn't know that they can use that back against you in the federal government because most of them other crimes were state crimes. And 2007 was a big political time. You got new politicians that are running for office and they're you know, trying to be hard on crime. And we were the scapegoats of their political game, I'd say. Thank you for getting us up to speed on that whole adventure that you went on. And it, it takes such a positive twist here. And what you're doing now is such an inspiration to so many people that you've gone through all that and here you are giving back. And we're going to dive into that as soon as we get back from the short break. So we'll be right back. No matter how you support our young people, the professional youth worker powered by Yippa has your training and learning needs covered. Visit training.yippa.org. That's training.yipa.org to see for yourself and then join the thousands of youth workers around the globe who learn from our easy to access exceptional trainings. From our blogs to our podcast, The Professional Youth Worker is your go-to resource for tools to help you keep going, keep learning, and keep growing. Members enjoy free unlimited access to live online and on-demand trainings and a preferred discount pricing for our one-of-a-kind certificate course. 
Annual memberships are ridiculously affordable for individuals and organizations. Visit training.yipa.org today to learn more. That's training.yipa.org. Marquise, right before the break, you were telling us how you ended up in prison. And then you, in prison, decided you're going to come out and be a different person. You're going to give back to the community and change things. And you started getting involved in different things in your community. Can you talk a little bit about why you became so motivated to try to help other young people so they didn't have to go through what you did? What changed that you wanted to give back so much? So when I was in uh, the Sherburne County awaiting my federal sentence, not really knowing what was happening, I mean, they gave me a bunch of papers that were blocked out because they were looking for these 11 other individuals on my case. Mm-hmm. And while I was in Sherburne County, my grandmother, my, my dad's mom passed and she was always trying to get me to go to church. And before I went to prison, I actually lived a block away from her church, the church that I go to now. And she was this well-loved bus driver that went to church that was really trying to get her grandchildren to do something different. And I'd always find excuses to not go to church. And I had always been around the church, but I was never a member of a church. And uh, she passed. And I thought to myself, well, I know she's going to heaven. And I remember at like 15, I was saved. I remember I was down at Potterhorn Park fishing and somebody came in and asked me, did I want to be saved? And I knew the importance of being saved, but I didn't know it fully. And to myself, you know, I was I was saved in in word. But when my grandma passed, I thought to myself, well, I know she's going to heaven. I don't know if I'm going there. So I kind of rededicated my life in Sherburne County to trusting and believing in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Up until that point, I had always allowed him to be my savior because I didn't want to go to hell. But I didn't allow him to be my Lord, which would be in control of my life. And when my grandma passed, I thought to myself, man, I definitely want to see her again. And I, the only way to do that was for me to go to heaven. And at that point, I wasn't sure. At the beginning of this podcast, I talked about how you've come full circle. You went to Roosevelt High School, and now you're working at Roosevelt High School. Yes, Talk sir. about how you got that job there and how that came to be, because I, I find that really interesting. So early on, uh, after the murder of George Floyd on 30th in Chicago, we called one of my mentors, Steve Floyd, who had been preaching this agape love to us back when we were going to Farwell and Roosevelt. And we called him and asked him, could we have his blessing to use that name? Just because we knew that he was planting seeds way back then and we didn't really fully understand it. And uh, he told us like flat out, if you guys are on the same type of stuff, no. But he so he kind of sat around and he at the time he was a professional photographer. So he kind of just sat around and was doing his photography thing. But he watched us at the same time. And he was one of these guys that were bringing the Timberwolves to our local gym. He actually opened up Central Gym because it was closed for a while. And this is the school that Prince went to. And uh, some some of the people at the schools had seen what we were doing in the community. And they were hearing a message about us transforming street energy into community energy knowing that we were the knuckleheads at one point. And once George Floyd got murdered, we literally made it where the neighborhood didn't burn down. And the first call we got was from South. They were having a local game against North High School. And they knew that that was a rival game. And they asked us to come and be those alternative policing to that situation, be the extra set of eyes and ears. And that's where we started, going to South. The athletic director somehow contacted somebody from our leadership team 
And then we just start going up to Roosevelt. And I had always wanted to go to Roosevelt anyway, just to make that connection. And then I found out two deans that worked there were my childhood friends from when I was going there. And I just used to go up there and just visit them and just be in that extra set of eyes and ears. And the position became available because the guy that was at the spot that I'm at now, he was a little bit older than me. He was having health issues and he would call off the day of work. And them seeing me just keep coming up there apart from Agape, just on my own, they kept seeing me come up there. And they was like, you know, they took a liking to me. I'm getting to know the principal. I'm getting to know other people that I went there with that work there now. And they were like, man, Marquise would be a the great person for this job. Yeah. And then, what, two months ago, the job opened up and I applied from it. But I had to do a background check, which was which was crazy because my background is, 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 is shattered. But they seen me in action. And they wasn't just going off of what they may have heard of me. They were seeing me in real life time. And, you know, I passed the background check and I got the job. That is so cool. You were just going up there just to be a community person, to go up there and just be friendly with the kids and show them that there's other options and to be that role model that so many of them don't get to see on a regular basis. You're just living this stuff. You are truly an altruistic person at this point in your life, giving back in any way you can. And I think about the work that you're doing with Agape and some of the other stuff at the school. And I think you must be making a wonderful connection with some of these young people. Are you good at connecting with young people? Do they gravitate towards you or they go, hey, there's Marquise, man. Let's go just chat with him. Yes. Uh, One of my mentors, Johnny Turnips, he told me, be what you needed. This was me coming to one of the elders in my community that went through some, some trying times in his life. And I grew up with some of his sons. And when I was in prison, when my mom passed, he was the one that did my mom's funeral. And I had known this guy forever. And he had changed his life. He started working with Art Erickson from Urban Ventures, a church that I was familiar with. He was doing a fathering program that I wanted to be a part of. And I was just going around him and sucking up all this stuff that he was putting out to the world. And he told me, be what you needed. And that's really that got me in the mind frame of really trying to just be that mentor that the youngsters can relate to because I, at one point in my life, I was with them. And now they see me because they've been seeing me for the last couple of years volunteering. They see me now throughout the whole day. And some of them, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a shoe guy. So I'm a, I got a, I got a, a addiction to shoes and hats uh, and they see me. So they want to have conversations with me and, you know, we're just connecting. I love basketball still. I'm still an active basketball player. I'm in semi good shape. So they're looking at this old guy that, you know, kind of can play basketball. And who is this guy? So I'm the I'm the new kid on the block, so to speak. And, you know, I, I, I got a positive demeanor. I'm, I'm coming with a different approach other than like a dean that's on you about attendance. And I'm trying to build relationships with them and let them know, like, brother, I was you. So let's, you know, let's go to class, man. Let's not just do a bunch of hanging out in the class. Let's actually go to the class. Even if you're not doing all the work, go there. And you might learn something. You must be beaming with pride and fulfillment to think of where you were in 12 years in federal prison is a long time. And here you are doing such noble work, 
righteous work. Uh, you must just be beaming inside. Are you? Say beaming with humility, not okay. thinking. And, and the meaning of that to me, which is this older guy told me, matter of fact, he was a younger guy. He told me that the, the, true, meaning of, the true meaning of humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Mm. And me as an only child, I had always put me first. Mm. Even when I started having kids, it was all me because I grew up an only child. I was self-centered, selfish. But now I get to put that not thinking less of myself, but thinking of others more than myself. And that really stuck with me. And uh, that's the energy that I try to put out into these youngsters. Because pride is pride is deadly. Yeah. Your, your humility is so transparent because you have so much to offer. What do you think the best thing you bring into your relationships with young people is? What's Mark Keese got that a lot of other people don't have? What do you got that is just magic with, with young people? I got the, uh, the experience to see myself in some of them as a, as a youngster that really had nobody kind of investing in them. And then I get to see and I get to tell them what the alternative is like. If you don't want to finish school and you want to be a knucklehead and not listen to nobody, you're going to go in prison and you're going to listen to everything that they say. You're going to do the worst jobs that you could imagine and pretty much, pretty much do it for free. So it's all right to go work at the Family Dollar or, or White Castles or McDonald's and make a couple hundred dollars up to thousands of dollars versus going in to prison and working in the chow hall and only getting paid 12 cents an hour. And it's almost like modern day slavery. In reality, that's what it is. I became a chairside dental assistant in there, and the most I made was like 60 bucks. Mm. And just think if I would have took that energy before all my criminality and went to school and did it out here, I probably would be making $40,000 a year or upwards. Yeah. But in, in prison, I was making $50 a month, and that's roughly $600 a year. And in reality, they're getting paid $30,000 a year for housing me in prison. So it's almost like they're really wasting money. Yeah. Because I could have, if they'd have put that towards my education outside and, you know, help me find my path in life, you know, I would have, I think I would have done better out here than I was in there. Because I, when I went to prison, I didn't get in any infractions or whatsoever. I was like the quote unquote modern prisoner. And, you know, a lot of brothers used to come to me and ask me to pray for them. A lot of people were wondering, like, what was I in prison for? I'm like, I wasn't always like this. But it came with, you know, just humbling myself and really trying to figure out what am I going to do going outside of prison? Because every most of the people are going to get out. What are you going to do when you go out? Because you're going in the same environment. You're going into the same family. What are you going to do different that will keep you out of prison? And I found my niche. You did. And I can't help but think, Marquise, like if there would have been people like you when you were younger, you could have avoided that whole thing, I believe. Because I think at the core of you is a decent, human, community-based, loving person. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's such a shame because it seems like society is so willing to just let so many people fall through the cracks like that. And what a mm -hmm. waste of human talent. What a waste of passion that you now have. 
I have one more question for you, and then we have to wrap it up already. Believe it or not, this time has gone by so fast. We learn from young people all the time. What are young people teaching you about yourself? What are young people teaching me about myself today? That it's okay to not be okay. Hmm. And just knowing that a lot of people look at people like youngsters, for instance, and myself, like what's wrong with them versus like what happened to them. And I'm just glad that I don't look like what I went through. Uh, a lot of people come out of my situations bitter, angry, mad at the world, mad at the system, but that's wasted energy. And I, I read a quote one time, I think it was by Martin Luther King. It's like, you're drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. And that's what happens when you get bitter and mad at everybody. They went on with their lives, but yeah, you're the one holding on to the anger and madness. And, you know, that type of stuff causes ulcers and cancers. So let it go. Yeah. Move forward. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. I am in awe of your commitment to our young people and working with the young people that maybe need the help the most. You have a tough challenge in front of you, but you seem like the very person that is up for the challenge. And I promise you, you are going to be changing lives of young people for many years to come. So thank you for all you've done and using your life experience, the trauma that you went through, you're turning it back into something positive for your community and you're doing it out of the love for our young people. And anybody who does that is a champion in my eyes. So thank you for the work Appreciate you do. And thank you, Marquise, for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Transforming street energy into community energy is um, I'm a specialist. I got a master's in disasters. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Marquise, thank before you. we go, we always give the guests the last word. What words of inspiration or wisdom would you like to share with the listeners? Seek to understand versus being understood. Of course, everybody wants to have their point of view heard, but take the time to actually listen to somebody and see where you can help them versus you always trying to be the one that wants help. Seek to understand versus being understood. And the agape movement, transforming street energy into community energy. Thank you. If you would like to share your passion for youth work, we'd love to spotlight you as a guest. If you have feedback about the show, please let us know. Just visit training.yipa.org. That's training.yipa.org and click on the podcast tab. This podcast is made possible in part due to a generous contribution from M Health Fairview. I'm your host, Paul Munir. Thanks for listening to The Passionate Youth Worker.